This is the current federal tax development for the week of April the 2nd, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. This week, we're going to be looking at a series of things that happen. I'm Ed Zollers, and I'm coming to you like normal from Phoenix. And this week, we have a few things the IRS did. And it's going to be basically all IRS developments here, IRS taking various actions. The first thing I'm going to discuss is the IRS issued a statement of non-acquiescence in a tax court case that we discussed back in 2021 that looked at situations when a taxpayer could try to argue for substance over form, even though they were the party involved in the form of the transaction. Secondly, we're going to talk about additional IRS dirty dozen tax schemes. And this one's going to talk about bad tax advice on social media. And I think I want to do this one mainly because I also want to discuss with you how you can properly use social media in a tax practice. And I'm not just talking about, you know, attracting clients. I'm talking about actually using it to obtain tax news and tax information because it can be useful in that regard. But just like the Internet as a whole, you have to understand the limitations and you have to do a little bit of grunt work on your own to verify data that you uncover, you know, determine the source of the data, as well as eventually in certain areas, determine the basic reliability. You know, do I say, hey, I like this, you know, I think this person probably has this right, because I think they usually get these right. But even if I think that, we're still going back to the old line Ronald Reagan had about, uh, you know, when you were talking about the uh, nuclear agreements with Soviets, was trust but verify. And I think that's also going to be true. We'll talk about that here too, where we go with that. We'll talk about the IRS issuing a ruling this week that addresses something that had begun to get some traction among certain practitioners uh, who are suggesting in estate planning that maybe, just maybe, assets held in an potentially defective grant or trust still qualified for the income tax step-up in basis under Section 1014, even though they weren't going to be included in the taxpayer's taxable estate. Uh, IRS is going to tell us that, no, they don't agree with that. We'll talk briefly about why they say they don't and a little bit about why some people have been trying to argue they do. Finally, we'll talk about the IRS issuing what had been, we knew these were coming. Remember that time period we've had for quite a while here where we could get a credit for the car even for electric car, new electric car this year, even though maybe we knew sure as anything that this battery was not going to have sufficient U.S. or at least uh, friendly country, shall we call it, sourcing of mineral components and battery components. You know, minerals and battery components, we knew it wouldn't have it. Well, that party is about to end on April the 17th. Uh, you need delivery by that date because, as we'll discover on that date, we now know that proposed regulations are going to make it into the Federal Register. We actually have the basically the pre-publication version of those has been published on the Federal Register site. It's just going to be published on the 17th, basically to give time for car makers to certify their vehicles meet these requirements before we're going to start using those requirements, or at least using them in a way that we can rely upon them. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that case, the Action on Decision 2023-02. This was actually published on the 13th of March, but we're just getting around to it now. It takes a while to get these out and get what's going on. Although, I, as I recall, I knew about this late last week, uh, but just, you know, we already had a pretty full discussion, so I thought I'd discuss it this week when I had time to go back and review the original case this relates to. This relates to the 2021 case of Complex Media Inc. versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2021-14. And we discussed that case when it came out because it was an interesting case from the standpoint that we had a taxpayer here who was attempting to argue and actually successfully argued, got the tax court to agree, that they should be able to apply substance over form in handling the tax transaction. And the interesting part about that is generally it's tougher for a taxpayer to make that go. The reason why is because generally the taxpayer 
is, was involved in actually doing the form of a transaction. And in certain cases, and we even talked about, we talked about the case in complex media, the Ninth Circuit even had recently, just before complex media, issued a case where they certainly suggested in a case they issued that there was no such thing, that a taxpayer could never successfully argue against the form of the transaction they had chosen because, you know, that, that allows you to game the system. Well, the tax court recognizes that that could be used to game the system, you know, to attempt to, you know, argue, you know, you agreed to some clause because the other party wanted this treated as, let's say, a capital gain. But now you're going to argue, oh, no, 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 you know, no, that, that, that wasn't it. In fact, it should be treated X ways, you know, for me. So I should be able to whatever I could do with it if it wasn't a capital gain to the other side. Or I could do something to where it gained me some advantage, let's say, in terms of structuring the deal that, you know, I, I had to do it this way that would have a negative tax consequence, but it was for a valid reason. And, you know, now I'm just trying to get the tax consequence that I couldn't otherwise get. We'll talk a little bit about that. The burden has always been much higher on taxpayers. It still is in these cases. And we'll talk about the distinction here the tax court pointed out in complex media. But what's going to be important in this case is that, as we'll discover, the IRS won't agree with this. Now, the tax court noted when they did complex media, this comes directly from that case, this quotation. Therefore, the court said, we now conclude the additional burden the taxpayer has to meet in disavowing transactional form relates not to the quantum of evidence, but instead to its content. I love that. In essence, you don't need more evidence. You just need certain types of evidence, right? Not how much evidence, but what evidence must show by the usual preponderance. The commissioner can succeed. This is the general rule for the IRS. All they have to clear is this. Can succeed in disregarding the form of transaction by showing that the form in which the transaction, in which the taxpayer casts the transaction, does not reflect its economic substance. And the reason why that works for the IRS is because they weren't involved in the form. Right? They're a party impacted by the form of the transaction if we accept the form and follow it. But they weren't involved in negotiating, so they're taking an inconsistent position. The courts will allow them to go substance over form. But when you are the party that set up the form, it's a little tougher to get this done. Now, the tax court said, okay. Now, and they even note in the decision that, you know, originally they really were like the Ninth Circuit, saying there was no way. You know, taxpayer can never disavow the form. They voluntarily entered into the form of transaction. If that form has a tax consequence, the taxpayer has to live with it. But now they're backing off a bit, at least in this case. So the tax court continued by saying, for the taxpayer to disavow the form it shows, or at least acquiesce to, it must make the showing and more. So first thing is you've got to, you're not getting anywhere unless you can show me the form of the transaction is clearly at odds with its economic substance. So taxpayer still has to show that. You can't show that. You don't, you don't get to pick alternate ways you could have structured this if the form of the transaction, nevertheless, was in line with the economic substance of what occurred. That's going to be the key. But beyond this, the taxpayer must establish that the form of the transaction was not chosen for the purpose of attaining tax benefits to either the taxpayer itself, as in the estate of Durkin they mentioned, or a counterparty, as in Coleman. The counterparty normally being the other side of the transaction you were involved in. So if either party got a tax advantage or is aiming for a tax advantage by using this form, game, set, match, we're done. You cannot disavow the form even if you aren't the party that got an advantage from that form, or at least you weren't the party that believed you were getting an advantage from that form, because that also happens from time to time. People structure something believing it gave them an advantage. It turns out they were wrong because they never consulted with you before they did it, and now they just want to ignore it. It's like, nope, you're going to fail on that side too. Okay, so it was not chosen for purpose of tank tax benefits are inconsistent with those the taxpayer seeks through disregarding that form. When the form the taxpayer seeks to disavow was chosen for reasons other than providing tax benefits inconsistent with those the taxpayer seeks, the policy concerns articulated in Danielson, which is an older case they mentioned, will not be present. That is, the IRS is not actually being whipsawed and clients aren't taking an inconsistent position. 
in going down this path. Now, in complex media, the tax court ruled that the taxpayer carried their burden in the case. And by that, I mean what they said was that effectively the taxpayer was able to show that they had, you know, that we didn't have the economic substance was at odds with the form. And the court found, you know, in that case, not only was it economic substance was in line with the form, but also that, you know, they weren't trying to get benefits, etc. So they did it. Now, the IRS specifically disagrees on two issues claims. And we're really talking only about one of them today is the thing I'm concentrating on because the others, I understand the point and their technical issues with the case itself. But, you know, we'll deal with that. Um, first, uh, the first issue was they did not agree with the court's conclusion that the parties fair to report the transactions fully or consistently should not be a major factor in a decision whether to allow a taxpayer to disavow the form of its transactions. What they're saying is, and you know, the taxpayer here did not fully disclose everything, shall we say, in this transaction, and you know, kind of left things off. And they're saying, well, look, if they're hiding stuff, etc., where they're not disclosing stuff that could be relevant, then seriously, you know, that's you know, the services, you know, is justified in forcing them to keep the form they had. The tax court found that what they left out wasn't significant, wasn't really a major problem that they're just going to apply their two tests. But the bigger part was here, and they said, and also to the standard the court applied to allow petitioner to disavow its form in this case. That is, the test being show there is a lack of economic substance, right? Economic substance doesn't agree with the form. And then number two, show that ni you know, neither party chose this form to obtain a specific tax benefit that is inconsistent with the benefit that the taxpayer now seeks to obtain. As I recall, they had somebody in complex media that they had a quirky provisions in the agreement because the other party, not, not complex media, but the other party they were dealing with, uh, as I recall, was very, very much paranoid and you know ki kind of wanted things to absolutely make sure they were totally quiet, etc. Nevertheless, quirky reasons had nothing to do with taxes, though it didn't change that other party's tax treatment. Uh, it would have affected complex medias, but they were not doing that to get the tax benefit. They are not doing that to get the tax effect. You know, they were essentially, you know, they were doing it just to close out the deal with what they seem to suggest, at least to some, in some sense, the way they kind of put it forward with their facts was a client that was, or a customer, whatever, other party that was difficult to deal with, shall we say. So that's basically what it is. It got the deal done. Also, they not acquiesce to the court's termination of the fair market value of a deferred payment right for purposes of Section 351B1 is not equal to its issue price. That was a very technical detail in this, and that's the item they were kind of, you know, that, that they got it restructured as that, and then they did evaluation. So they're disagreeing on the basic issue there, but not really something that we're worried about today that we analyzed back. We talked about complex media, and you want to go read the case, you can figure that out. Now, the big takeaway from this is to remember, because the court even discusses the fact that in some circuits, like the Ninth, they really can't apply this standard, right? The Ninth Circuit's going to come back and normally slap you down for attempting to argue substance over form, if you were in charge of the form. But where the court has a choice now, they're indicating that if the, ninth, if the circuit that it would be appealed to you know, allows the standard they're talking about here. This is the standard the tax court plans to use, which is this test. Now, what non-acquiescence means is that the IRS is not going to accept that position, right? And they are going to continue to contest it. So don't expect, you know, in essence, complex media is not something that probably is going to get you a quick, you know, agent rollover, play dead, you know, and accept, oh yeah, we'll go ahead and use this form instead of that one because you quoted complex media. Or in appeals, that's not likely to turn it real quickly. Uh, whether or not the counsel's office decides to go forward to court or not, different issue eventually, or whether they compromise it there, that's a different issue. But ultimately, yeah, don't expect complex media and its decision about substance over form and attempting to recast the transaction away from the form that you agreed to, 
don't think that that test necessarily is going to be an easy one. Yes, you may still win on it. Certainly, if you go to the tax court, you'll win at that level. Uh, and then the question becomes, does the IRS go ahead and appeal that up the line? And what would happen in the Court of Appeals once you did that? Again, probably expensive, which means for most of our clients who just don't want issues with the IRS and certainly don't want to pay for a long extended exam and for a whole bunch of litigation related to the issue, probably means they really aren't going to be able to do it, at least not easily. Again, doesn't mean you can't, but it does mean that, yeah, you know, it, they have to understand the amount of fighting that will go on if the IRS raises the issue and, you know, how far they need to push it in order to potentially win. Next up, we're back to the dirty dozen tax schemes again. This time talking about taking tax advice on social media can be bad news for taxpayers. Schemes circulating involving tax forms. And this is Internal Revenue News Relief 2023-61 news release, I should say. And that was issued on March the 28th. And what this talks about here is it is a dirty dozen warning about bad tax advice running rampant on social media. Now, social media, as we know, can be many things. It can be Facebook. It can be Instagram. It can be YouTube. It can be TikTok, right? It can be all of those areas, Instagram, right? All of those things are social media. It could be discussion boards in various locations, you know, so let's say something like Reddit. And definitely we have an issue with advice from time to time. The big thing your clients have to understand, you've got to tell them this. Remember, anybody can post on social media. And I mean that literally, you know, this session I'm doing right now is going to be posted on social media and a few other ways of distribution. So you might get this through your state society. You might get it through YouTube. You might get it through, a, you know, having done a podcast subscription on uh, Apple Podcasts or, or Google Podcasts, whatever you're doing, you know, but nobody is actually proofing this there it's not as if if i when i upload this to youtube or i upload it to vimeo that anybody at google or anybody at vimeo is going to actually go through and review this you know this presentation and is going to actually do fact checking behind it right you are the party that is expected to evaluate whatever message goes on social media for the most part because anybody can post it if you've been on if you've been on social media, you should have figured that out, hopefully. So remember, nobody has fact-checked the issue except the poster, who frankly sometimes is simply a fraudster posting online to get you to go down a rabbit hole. It could be they're simply ignorant. They don't know. They're parroting something somebody else told them who didn't know what they were saying. So it's not always bad faith, but whichever it is, you have to understand that when you pick something up on social media, uh, you do need to verify anything you find out there. And that includes even presentations like this. And we'll talk about that a little bit here shortly. But how you would do things to verify what you're seeing. So the news release tells us, again, as always, these news releases on the Dirty Dozen always have a quotation from the IRS commissioner. Um, so it talks about there are many ways to get good tax information, including from a tax trusted tax professional, tax software, and IRS gov. But people should be incredibly wary about following tax advice being shared on social media. Now, I'm going to tell you as a tax professional, I'm going to suggest that you don't read that to say you never pay attention to something posted on social media. To be honest, frankly, the people that I follow on things like tax Twitter the people, you know, the places I look when I'm looking at a place like Reddit. You know, when I follow, when I look at those things or YouTube on an issue like this, um, I know people that I'm willing to follow. And I know, you know, they have the background. So, it's, you know, it's one thing if you have a tax advice posted by somebody I've never heard of, you know, I'm not going to just blindly follow it. But if I have a, you know, the tax advisor, let's say AICPA's tax advisor publication, you know, posts a link to one of their articles, I'm probably going to put a little more behind that because I know who they are. Now, if I happen to know that, let's say, you know, somebody on social media, I know who they are, I know their background, I may put a lot of, you know, I, I may decide, hey, 
They're probably got it. I probably can verify what they're telling me. That'll be key. But the IRS notes, the IRS continues to see a lot of inaccurate information could get well-meaning taxpayers in trouble. And in fact, on tax Twitter, we joke about this every so often. It gets in there about the garbage, you know, tax advice you see on various odd places. So we'll talk about that. People should remember there is no secret way to fill out a form and simply get a larger refund they aren't entitled to. Remember, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So the IRS advice on this. Now, there are, on social media, we have had a lot of things going on. And this you want to be aware of just because some of your clients run into it and say, well, you know, I was told that I was told you can do this. Well, they heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody, etc. So let's talk about some of the bad tax advice that's making the rounds currently that you may need to be aware of. Uh, we talk about that, social media, connect people and information all over the world. Unfortunately, sometimes people provide bad advice that can lure good taxpayers into trouble. The IRS warns taxpayers to be wary of trusting internet advice, whether it's a fraudulent tactic promoted by scammers or it's patently false tax-related scheme, tr- scheme, I should say, trending across a popular social media platform. Again, skepticism is the key here. And they note there where, and they're going to mention two of them here, a various filing season hashtags and social media topics leading to inaccurate and potentially fraudulent information. The central theme involves people trying to use legitimate tax forms for the wrong reasons. Here are just two of the recent schemes circulating online. And I should say, these sorts of ideas that there's a magic tax form and you fill it out in a magic perfect way and suddenly you get tons of money, those predate the internet. I, I've been in practice since 1982, and I guarantee you, I remember hearing about scams like that floating around various ways they got around. But the internet did not start these things. It just provides a way to get them communicated more efficiently. But it's the same basic issue we had before. The first thing I talk about is Form 8944 fraud. But you may wonder, what in the heck could you do with Form 8944? Right? Uh, the prepare e-file hardship waiver request form. It's like, huh? <laughs> How could that be anything? Well, apparently, there is advice telling people, uh, suggesting that you can use this form to get a magic hidden refund that you just got to know. It's kind kind of like In and Out Burgers, you know, secret menu. If you make the right incantation, you get whatever odd thing you've got. So post claims of Form A944 can be used by taxpayers to receive a refund from the IRS, even if the taxpayer has a balance due. This is false information. 8944 is for use by tax professionals only. Now, the neat thing about this type of a claim is that when you tell your client that, no, it's just only we use it, oh, you're part of the cabal. You're you're, you're part of the group that's keeping this secret from everybody. That's what it is. So... That's something you'll sometimes run into. While this is a legit uh, IRS tax form, it's intended for a targeted group of tax return preparers who are requesting a waiver saying file tax returns on paper instead of electronically. It is not in any way a form the average taxpayer can use to avoid tax bills. Taxpayers who intensely file forms with false or fraudulent information can face serious consequences, including potentially civil and criminal penalties. Okay, So that one's going around. You hear about that. And as I said, by the very nature of it, and supposedly the secret hidden menu aspect of it, you're going to find that, and by the way, this is a client you just fire. At this point, there's no point, right? But in any event, you may find that'll be the argument you'll hear. Form W-2 fraud. Now, this one, I hate to say it, this one's so obvious. Anybody who falls for this one, it's very difficult to claim you didn't know it was wrong, right? This scheme, which is circulating on social media, encourages people to use tax software to manually fill out Form W-2 wage and tax statement and include false income information. In this W-2 scheme, the scam artist suggests people make up large income and withholding figures as well as the employer it's coming from. Scam artists then instruct people to file the bogus tax return electronically in hope of getting a substantial refund. Now, we know what you're really doing here is scamming the system, Right? You're playing the fact that early in tax season, you know, the IRS starts processing returns mid-January. You know that the W-2s won't go to Social Security until the end of the month, most likely. And even then, it'll take time for them to migrate their way over into the IRS systems. So, yes, 
if you totally fraudulently prepare a W-2 that has a legitimate employer ID number on it and a legit, you know, employer. So, you know, you just find somebody, you know, your buddy has a W-2 from Intel. So you have Intel's ID number on there, or you just use your old employer's ID number because you got that too from your real W-2 and then just inflate the numbers. Well, yeah, that's likely to initially process and get you your refund. There's problems after that, right? The IRS, along with Security Sum Partners, the tax industry in the States, are actively watching for the scheme. In addition, the IRS works with payroll companies, large employers, as well as Social Security Administration to verify W-2 information. This is one of those things that unless you're planning to leave the country, it's going to catch up with you, right? That'll be the key. And I mean, I find it hilarious because it, it depends on people believing the dumbest things. One of which is, well, obviously, if they sent me the check, then it must all be legit, right? They sent me the money. No, you defrauded them. That's called fraud. And no, the IRS is not going to see. If the IRS waited until they could get the W-2 information and be able to double check it completely for every taxpayer, your refund would end up coming late in the year at best. So no, nope, they're going to take your word for it. But when they find out it's wrong, they're going to come back at you with penalties interest. And it's going to be pretty obvious that you created a fake W-2. And that's, that's penalty time. It's just really tough to argue that you didn't know that was wrong. Like, who, why? Because somebody on YouTube told you it was okay? Somebody on TikTok? You know, a Twitter post said? It's like, why? Yeah, don't do that. Now, no, social media is something really useful. I use it all the time. In fact, I get probably you know, a good chunk of my leads when things come down, when something happens, when the IRS kicks something out, I tend to get those off social media. Um, I don't get them by waiting until Thomson Reuters writes up, because we use Checkpoint, you know, Thomson Reuters writes up an article and puts it in their tax update newsletter, right? I need to move faster than that. And I can find out things are happening by following the right people on social media. But the catch is anything you get from social media must be vetted, at, must be adequately vetted. You know, if somebody posts that the IRS has just released, let's say, like the, uh, you know, the action on decision we discussed earlier in this session uh, about the fact they're not going to follow complex media. Well, if they posted the actual AOD number, I can then go verify it. I was made aware it exists by them. And I can then verify, right? They need it's verifiable. That also means that posts you see that simply have the answer are not worth much. In fact, they're I consider them worth less. You know, if you just if you just tell me the answer is X, that's worthless information. Even if that answer is right, it's still worthless information because I can't know that it's right. Okay. You should confirm any details claimed in the article or post. Taxpayer, you know, somebody posts on, let's say, tax Twitter and says, we've got this action on decision. They're not going to follow complex media for purposes of disavowing the form of a transaction that you entered into. Um, now, I'm not going to just accept their word that this AOD says that the IRS won't follow that because A, First thing is, it probably has 140 characters or whatever. If you're paying for blue check marks on Twitter, yes, you can go longer than that. But still, it's highly unlikely they're just going to give me the pure text of what they said. So probably they're editing, so I need to go double check it. But, what but what's helpful was they told me the thing to go look at. So what I'm really learning is that thing exists, and I can verify that thing exists, and then I can verify what it says. The same thing you should be doing. Verify that AOD exists and verify what it says. As a professional, you need to remember not to trust a statement, including one made on this program, until you find binding confirmation. There's a reason why we give you the citations here. Because the citations are how you can go back and say, he got it right, right? You know, in essence, you, 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 you can accept what I'm saying. You can go back and verify it, right? You can go back and you can form your own conclusions. Well, you know, he talked about this, he summarized it, but really, you know, there's these other things. And in my client's particular situation, there's a couple of parts of this that weren't talked about that are really important. 
And by the way, those are details you run into when you do that, right? The best options you're going to find, I find social media stuff, generally the best options are those that provide sites to, to supporting information. If you don't know why an answer is true in tax, you're not being a tax professional. I'll put it bluntly. If you don't know why the answer is, that LASIK, let's say, is a deductible medical expense. You don't understand the why. And by the why, I mean to be able to run me down to something that will count as binding guidance. Right? So something that will go all the way to binding guidance, because that tells me why. And I say this because I've run into too many cases where tax professionals have gotten themselves in trouble by just reading answers somewhere, not understanding why that's the answer, and then doing something that just is disastrous. Right? You assume things that don't really exist, or you assume things that aren't true because you learned the answer. Like all the people that get confused, well, you know, if you formed an LLC and you did a, and you filed the 2553 to have that LLC elect S status, well, if, if I go back down and file the form to change that single member LLC back to disregarded, well, nothing happens, right? Or if I terminate my S election, it becomes a disregarded entity with no real tax impact. That is wildly wrong. They're both wildly wrong. This can be very, very expensive. I've got a thread on Twitter this week that I got brought into uh, along with, uh, Tony Nitty was in the trend as well. And as we noted, it tends to be really expensive and really problematical, you know, to go that route. First thing is, if you just terminate the S election, you're a C Corp. Now, if you don't think you're a C Corp, you're probably gonna make some really bad tax decisions, right? Or if you didn't mean to be a C-Corp, that's bad taxes. You can't get back to without going through liquidation. And it's really bad if you then discover a year later you need to liquidate the C-Corp, and now it's a C-Corp, so when you liquidate it, you know, you're going to effectively, when you change it to Sigma LLC, you liquidate it, now you're going to pay the double tax on liquidation because you're liquidating a C-Corp. And the same thing is true about understanding, even if you do it right and you do file the change of entity form, uh, you still have to go through a liquidation where you're going to pay at least a single level of tax on the gain on disposition, right? Any gains that come out because any distribution to a shareholder is always taxable and that's a deemed distribution. And you'd know all that if you actually understood the regulations that back up section 7701, get my citation right, that is the general definition, which is where we find what's called the check the box rules. And there are details in there that tell you what's going to happen. But if you've never looked at that reg, you've never heard of that reg, you just, you, you've just memorized the answers and just the answer you had at that point in time, the odds of you making a bad decision go through the roof. Just going to say it very simply. Okay. Next, we're talking about Revenue Ruling 2023-2, issued on the 29th of March. And this involves generally in what do we call intentionally defective grant or trust. Okay. Intentionally defective grant or trust are stuff we've been using for a long time. Okay. Let's talk about the basic structure here. An intentionally defective grant or trust is a trust structured so that the transfer of the assets to the trust is treated as a, as a completed gift for gift tax and estate tax purposes. Right? So it's out of my estate. Uh, generally, it's going to mean the trust is going to be irrevocable and have a few other, you know, a few other things to make sure I don't retain uh, any strings that get it back into my estate. So we now structure it so it's outside my estate. However, for income tax purposes, we are going to retain a power of some sort that does not cause a problem for estate tax inclusion, but does does have under the income tax rules brings in what's called the grant or trust rules that i recall go back historically to like the 1960s uh that say if the if you if you as a grantor to a trust for income tax purposes retain certain powers in the trust then we're going to treat you as the owner of the asset so all income is taxed on your 1040 and if you sell the asset for a gain whatever it's taxed on you you own the asset and they did that originally on the grantor trust rules because prior to having those rules, people would set up a whole bunch of trusts in order to take advantage of lower tax brackets. It was also in the case where trusts had the same tax brackets as individuals. So if you had a whole bunch of trusts, you could lower your taxes. 
by having your investment income pop up across a bunch of trusts. So we got the grant or trust rules where if you retain certain rights. So certain rights, you know, it's treated as owned for income tax purposes. Now, something you'll see in a lot of these trusts, if you do it, the, the power I see used almost exclusively, it's not the only way to do it, but it's the way I've tended to see it always done, is a power to substitute, the grantor has a right to simply substitute assets of equal value for any asset in the estate. And that without any, and the fiduciary cannot say, oh, no, 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 that's not an appropriate asset for this trust to hold. The grantor has the right to substitute at will. It does have to be of equal value. You can't make this work by allowing to substitute things that aren't of equal value, but you substitute something of equal value. Now, a legitimate way to do some after the fact estate planning with that structure is to go ahead and let, let's say that you have a, there's an asset now, it's, you know, it's in that trust, it's highly appreciated, but you actually still have other assets that aren't as highly appreciated or that have a higher basis. So you could, let's say, you know, you're, you're figure you're getting up there, you're, you really think your kids would appreciate having a stepped up basis on this asset, so I take assets of equal value out of my estate, put them into the trust and take that appreciated asset back out and hold it personally. Now, if I do that, that will get a step up in basis at my debt. And it won't change my estate tax because again, the value is still the same. Now, obviously if it continues to grow rapidly in value, it might be a problem. But again, we're gonna assume for whatever purposes you, you would make this change late in the game. So you, you would bring this through and bring it back over into your estate and transfer enough other assets to give it an equivalent value over in the trust. So that would be there. Now, some advisors though had argued that the IRC section 1014 is met, in essence, which gives a step up in basis, or should say, sets the basis of the asset equal to the fair market value on the Decedent's date of death or alternate valuation date, if you have an estate tax return filed, uh, that it meets section 1014b2, which means even though their argument is it's not in your taxable estate, because remember, that was the whole point for estate planning purposes, that you still get a step in base. It's like the best of both worlds, right? We put this in this magic trust. It doesn't get taxed at my death in my estate, but my kids still get the full step up in basis. So when they sell that asset, they won't have to pay any income tax. I mean, it skips both death taxes. Well, most of us have assumed for a long time that didn't work. Okay. Well, here, let's take a look at B1 and see what's there. And the question becomes is property must be acquired from a decedent, right? And for purposes of getting that basis adjustment, the following property shall be considered to have been acquired from or to have passed from the decedent. And what they tend to go after is one, they claim to claim, they claim to state that this property going through the trust, because remember, the trust normally says for my life, right, I have the right to substitute, et cetera. And then when I die, my rights in the trust are terminated, kind of obvious, you know, and then it passes on to my kids, right? My kids then, then don't make a distribution out of it at that point. It might've been distributing, you know, it might've been doing other things, but in essence, at my death, it passes to my kids. And they're saying, well, you structure that, then yes, you know, you die, suddenly the assets now have moved to, totally to the kids and are now considered owned by the kids for income tax purposes. So their statement is, well, that, that should be property acquired by them by bequest, device, or inheritance, or by the decedent's estate from the deceit. They're saying, so it should meet those requirements, is what they're claiming. Now, most of us have never believed it met that. Most of us believe this only refers to things that are in the decedent's taxable estate. But obviously, some people have been pushing this. High net worth groups have been marketed to. So the IRS felt like they needed to release this statement. So the issue that this looks at from the, from the actual IRS revenue ruling is, is there a basis adjustment or section 1014 to the revenue code? The assets of a trust on the death individual who is the owner of the trust under chapter one of the code if the trust assets are not including the owner's gross estate pursuant to chapter 11 of the code. So essentially translating that to English, if it's a grantor trust, right, whose assets are not subject to estate tax when I die, so the intentionally defective grantor trust, 
you know, and by the way, intentionally defective means that it's a grantor trust, you know, but it's intentionally structured to be one. We didn't accidentally become grantors. Sometimes that happens. That's bad. But we intentionally meant for it to be one. And we intentionally structured it to avoid inclusion in our estate, unlike the grantor trust you see most often, which would be a standard living trust, where, yes, it's revocable living trust. Because it's revocable, it's always going to be in my estate. So what if we have a defective, an intentionally defective grantor trust? Does that work? So our facts is, in year one, A, an individual established an irrevocable trust, T. He funded T with an asset in a transfer that's completed gift for gift tax purposes. A, the, you know, the, the person that funded the trust that put the asset in, retained a power over T that causes A to be treated as the owner of T for income tax purposes under subpart E, uh, part one of subchapter J of chapter one, subpart E. The grantor trust rules is what that means in short. A did not hold a power over T that would result in inclusion of assets in the gross estate under the provisions of chapter 11. So again, intentionally defective grantor trust is exactly what we're talking about here. By the time of A's death in year seven, the fair market value had appreciated. At A's death, the liabilities did not exceed the basis of the assets in T, and neither T nor A held a note on which the other was the obligor. By the way, that last sentence is primarily to get around a potential question that also comes in. If you had that situation and the estate now is technically relieved of that, is there a gain on when the person dies? Is that a taxable gain to them on that steam sale? And we won't get to that. That's a whole long other discussion. So they're just avoiding that discussion here entirely. Okay. Now their analysis said for property to receive a basis adjustment under 1014, the property must be acquired or passed from a decedent. Property to be acquired or passed from a decedent purpose of 1014, it must fall to one of the seven types of property listed under 1014B. 1014B, one to seven. The asset does not fall within any of the seven types. And the one we're looking at is one because that's the one they tend to argue for. Upon A's death, it was not bequeathed, devised, or inherited within the meaning of 1014b1. It bequests an act of giving property, using personal property or money, by will. Black's Law Dictionary 2019. The U.S. Supreme Court defined a bequest as a gift to personal property by will for purposes of the predecessor of this section in United States versus Miriam. Right? A device is the act of giving property, especially real property, by will. Black's Law Dictionary, Volume 97 of Corpus Juris Secundum. How's that? I murdered that, but that's okay in terms of pronunciation. Notes that although bequest and bequeath strictly refer to a gift by will or personal property, the words may be given a broader meaning to include real property, which under a narrow definition would be a device. Okay. Inheritance is property received from an ancestor under the laws of intestacy or property the person receives by bequest or device. Again, from Black's Law Dictionary. In Boccaccio versus United States, and I apologize for that uh, pronunciation, 1961, Sixth Circuit case, the court found the property transferred in trust prior to the scene's death is not bequeathed or inherited because it did not pass either by will or intestacy. The court stated, we construe those, we construe those terms, bequest or inheritance, according to usual normal meanings, and noted that the decedent's death did not transfer assets to the trust. This does not imply that property and trust could never fall within the meaning of Section 1014, such as property included by the gross estate due to 1014b2, 3, or 4. However, in the facts outlined above, the trust property does not fall within the meaning of those terms. Right? And they also point out congressional committee reports basically said that we're talking about things going by that B1 as items that are essentially part of your estate. So, you know, a taxable estate stuff. So if it's out of your taxable estate, you don't get the basis step up or step up or step down, as the case may be. And then they finally go on and say, look, it doesn't meet any of the other requirements, right? Assets not described in T14B2, 3, or 4 because A did not retain a power to revoke or amend the trust or hold a power to appoint asset. Assets not described in B6 because it's not community property. And finally, assets not described by B9 or 10 because it's not excluded in gross estate under provisions of Chapter 11. Because at A's death, asset does not fall into within any of the seven types of property listed in 1014B, the asset will not receive a basis step up at A's death. So, the holding... A creates T, an irrevocable trust, the power in which causes A to be the owner of the entire trust for tax purpose under Chapter 1, but does not cause the trust assets to be included in the gross estate for estate tax purposes. If A funds T with an asset and transactions completed gift for gift tax purposes, the base of the asset is not adjusted to its fair market value on the date of A's death on 1014 because the asset was not acquired or passed on beneficiaries defined by 1014B. 
Accordingly, under this revenue ruling's facts, the base of the asset immediately after A's death is the same as the base of the asset immediately prior to A's death. Nothing changes. Okay. Um, now, obviously, this is something that some, you know, at the higher end estate planning groups have been potentially discussing this. My guess is this is going to cause a bit of pushback uh, against this because, again, taxpayers may not like, you know, having their kids have to try to fight this, supposedly with the IRS, if it comes up. It is more aggressive. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. Again, the IRS, obviously, those who would push this would say, say oh, they still think, you know, the code says it works, per the code it works, so this wouldn't override that. That would be technically correct. But what it does mean is don't expect the service to accept this position and expect you to have to litigate and understand that the service doesn't like this. And because of that, it is our professional responsibility as advisors to make sure the client is aware when they're taking a position that if the IRS discovers the position, is highly likely going to challenge it. Even though we might think we have a way to argue it's an okay position or it's an acceptable position, if it's a position where the odds of, of having to go to litigation to carry that position is high, you can't keep that from the taxpayer. And, you know, I've, I've talked with, uh, I think I mentioned in the past years ago, talking with somebody who did that kind of, you know, expert witness work in cases like that for very, very large accounting firms. And yes, they've lost cases where they failed to tell the client that the tax position they were pushing was a very aggressive one that was almost certainly going to have to go to court to win the position. And when the client suddenly is facing these big bills with a big exam and all this hassle they don't want, suddenly they're out to get money from the firm for, you know, to compensate them for the problems they have right now, uh, largely because the firm didn't warn them that the IRS would react badly to this, even if the underlying transaction, underlying logic of, the, of their position was good enough to be able to allow you to sign the return. It doesn't mean the client doesn't have any right to know the position's aggressive. That is still the client's right to know because they get to decide whether or not they want to take the risk. That is their choice. Our choice is to let them know what the facts are and know what their chances are and what we can sign off on and what we can't. And then it's up to them to decide what they want to do. And if they decide on something that we can sign off on, and if with eyes wide open, fully understanding what they're doing, fine, I have no problem with that. But we can't just ignore the fact that there are these problems and you know run, let them run and you know let them run into this big problem having no idea they're heading toward it. That's wrong. Okay, finally. Um, oh, I, I shouldn't have said I got this title wrong. This is actually, if you look at the slide. What this thing really is about is the IRS has issued the battery regulations now. So I'll do that. This is a publication of Federal Register, April 17, 2023. And this is uh, basically fact sheet 2023-08, March 2023. The IRS has published what's out there, the long-awaited battery sourcing rules for electric vehicles. That's the big thing we've got here, right? Now, cars will need to meet these rules to get the full 7,500 e new EV credit if placed in service after April 17, 2023, right? That'll be the rules regarding how much the sourcing of critical minerals and percentage of those critical minerals that are properly sourced, as well as how much of your battery is assembled in a proper location. Now, proper location or proper sourcing varies, and they're working on these regs will come into where those things are. Um, you know, try, trying to walk the fine line between what Congress wanted to do, which was encourage all of this to be done in the U.S., and what may be possible with our allies and other related countries and, you know, World Trade Organization, etc. This is getting kind of interesting, but another mess. But in any event, beginning on April 18th, if you take delivery of the car that wasn't grandfathered, you know, you didn't have that agreement in place by August 16th of last year, you have a non-grandfathered agreement. We entered into it after that date to buy the car, um, and we take delivery after April 17th. Then, if the car doesn't meet these requirements, we could lose some or all of the credit. Basically, you either get half the credit, you either get 7,500, 3,750, or nothing. Those are your options. 
And a lot of cars that currently are eligible for the 7500, because the IRS is kind of letting everything go and not worrying about the battery test until they got this done, a lot of those cars we fully expect will no longer qualify. So we're going to find out they won't be there anymore. Okay. So as it said in the fact sheet, vehicles placed in service on or after April 18th, the credit amount will depend on the vehicle meeting critical service minerals requirements, 3750, and or the battery compliance for the other 3750. The vehicle meeting neither requirement will not be eligible for credit, vehicle meeting, meeting only one requirement may be eligible for 3750 credit, vehicle meeting both requirements may be eligible for the full save of $100 credit. Okay. So the key date here is April 17th. When we get to the 1040 due dates, if you take delivery of your car on April 18th this year, you have to meet the new rules. The idea is we have this long run before it gets published to register to give the manufacturers time to certify which of their vehicles meet these requirements and determine which one to do and certify them so that they'll we'll know what they are by then. But if your client is buying a new electric car right now and they can't get a delivery by April 18th, you might you should warn them that we got a problem coming. I mean, I've been warning people all along that these battery rules, we expected them to come in sometime after March, and bingo, right at the end of March, we end up getting these rules. So be aware of that. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of April the 2nd, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and Kaplan Financial Education. Uh, if you have any questions, you can email me at dollars at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com, and I'll see if I have time to respond. I also follow discussions on the Connect Groups for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, and the discussions on Idaho. Now, it's interesting, and I'm not sure about next week right now, because obviously there's this thing called Easter. I've got family commitments for next week. It's also just before the end of tax season, so I've got tax season commitments next week. Um, so whether I have time to get something recorded next week or whether in fact, we may even be waiting till after the extended, after the April 18th date for the next session is open. If I have time, I'll try to get something up. But obviously, right now, it clearly depends. So if I don't talk to you next week or two weeks from now, uh, we'll see you once the tax season's over. But otherwise, you can check back in, and I hope to get at least one of those two up. And we'll talk to you then about whatever's happening in the area of current federal tax developments.